Um, anybody notice that Facebook was down today? Facebook, I, so some of this is just speculation, okay? So, I, like, I just heard this stuff today. If you fact check it, I might be wrong, okay? I got the Bible stuff right. I'm not sure about the Facebook stuff, though. But what I heard today was this. I heard that uh, Facebook and all the stuff that they own, so Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger, all that stuff was down for, like, seven or eight hours, something like that, that Facebook lost 5% of its worth today, which meant that Mark Zuckerberg personally lost $7 billion of his net worth today, Sad. I know. It's okay, you guys. They haven't programmed emotions into Mark yet, so he doesn't know. Okay? He's a robot. Ha-ha. <laughs> um, no. I also heard today that, uh, that because of the DNS problems they were having that caused all of that stuff, all of their security is based on that as well, and so Facebook's employees couldn't to fix it all, they didn't have the security clearance to get into their own buildings to fix it because all of their own systems were right. It's like artificial, their own artificial intelligence was keeping them out of their buildings today to fix it. I don't know if that's true. That's what I heard. I thought that was interesting, though, because I wanted to start tonight actually by talking about social media. So it was interesting to me that that was down today because I have a theory that approximately 90%, maybe 85% of social media is based on this phrase, all right? This phrase, this idea that comes out of our social media, notice me, please, notice me. I want you to see me. I want you to understand how important I am or that my life is good. Or can I just list out all of the, sometimes we do it the opposite way. Look at how hard my life is, you guys. Look at how hard it is to be me. All of these things that happened to me today. Tell me that my body is beautiful. Tell me that my life is glorious. Tell me that my opinions are wise. Tell me that I have value, that I'm relevant, that I'm wise, that I matter. This is so interesting to me, you guys, because in our culture, there's this conversation about identity. I mean, all over the place. We're talking about identity all the time. But the conversation in our culture is that identity comes from within, that I am the, the arbiter of my own identity. And it's me. I decide this. It all comes. And it, so, but simultaneously... We're just constantly being like, what do you think of me? Don't you like this about me? What do you think that this is okay about me? So we've got this conflict in us of being like, it's me. I'm the one who decides this, but do you like it? Do you think it's true? Do you think I'm okay? Is all of this all right? It's like, so it's this weird division that happens within us that all falls under this weird, broad category of notice me. We are aching for other people to tell us who we are. And the next series that we're launching into from now until Christmas, the rest of the semester, okay, which isn't, it's only like eight weeks, not to freak you out, okay, but like, but the next series that we're jumping into is this I Am series, because I, I talked about it a few weeks ago. When God meets Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, and Moses says to him, I don't know who you are, like, tell me your name. If people ask who you are, what should I tell them? And you remember what God says in that moment? He just says, I am. If people ask you, who sent you, you say, I am sent me, which is a really weird answer, because it's like, it's like there's supposed to be an, a something in there, I am Ben, okay? <laughs> like that, there's supposed to be an object at the end of that sentence, but there is no object that describes God in his perfection, and so that just becomes his title in Exodus 3. What's beautiful, you guys, is God spends the rest of the Bible filling in that sentence, it's not a mystery. There are literally hundreds of names, Old Testament and New Testament, that we have to describe God. God, God does fill in that blank over and over and over and again. He wants us to understand him. He wants us to know him. I've said, it, I've said it a lot from the stage, 
God is notoriously bad at hide-and-seek, you guys. Some of you feel like God's just hiding from you. He's not. The story of Scripture is a God who wants to be found, who wants to reveal himself to you, who wants you to understand his character and who he is. Jesus Christ himself, one of his names was Emmanuel, God with us with skin on, the 3D printed God that we could touch and see and feel and understand and we could look at his emotions and see who he is, what made him angry, what made him sad. And so the reason why we're launching into this I Am series is because from an identity perspective, I'm going to make the argument that you have no business talking about who you are until you understand who you are in proximation to God, who he is. And I'm a huge fan of like, you know, personality tests. This, I like the modern push that we have to understand ourselves, you guys. Enneagram, Myers-Briggs, all of it, okay? But, but the prerequisite is knowing who we are in Christ. That's the prerequisite course. And the rest of that stuff, it becomes gravy on top of that, okay? Or icing or whatever you want to call it. It's the next step, all right? So as we launch in to this series there's something that I was reminded of for me. Um, in my own story, in my journey with Jesus and with God, I, I grew up sort of in the church. And I didn't come, really come from a Christian family, but I, I grew up in and around the church a lot. And I had friends who knew God. That was like a huge blessing. It was a grace that God had on my life. Because I knew about God for a long time before I knew him. But I thought I knew him. Does that make sense? I like, I went to church stuff. I was involved in like, you know, I mean, sort of involved in youth group stuff, and I was around people's houses who were Christians, and I knew the language that you were supposed to use, and I knew enough Bible that I could fit in, but it was like, it was more about the structures of the church world than it was a relationship with the God of the universe who loved me. That's my story, and I suspect it's some of your stories, that you ended up in this room because you're part, like, you, you know church culture, and you, you even like parts of it, and you are drawn to pieces of it. But there was something inside me, you guys, that knew that my friends knew Jesus in a way that I didn't. That's what eventually brought me to God. It's what eventually brought me to my knees and helped me become a Christian, because there were people around me, my friends, who I knew there was something, a kind of transformation going on on their inside that I didn't have. I was trying to recreate it on the outside but there's something different. And there's this scripture in Matthew 7 that always freaked me out for that reason. And it's this moment where Jesus is talking to his disciples as part of the Sermon on the Mount, and he tells them, he says, hey, in the end, there are gonna people, be people who come to me and say, hey, didn't I prophesy, and didn't I do miracles, and didn't I, didn't I do all these things in your name? And he'll say, yeah, but I never knew you. These people who knew about God even tried to use his power, but didn't really know him. And I'm not trying to freak you out. I'm not trying to be, make you question everything you know about, like, do I know God? Is this, like, am I one of those people? But that was the headspace that I was in. And you guys, there is a world of difference between knowing about him and knowing him. And if the only thing you hear me say this entire year is this, it would be good. All I want is for you to meet my friend. All I want is for you to know the Savior, the, the Christ, the one who can bring you life and inner transformation. I don't want to invite you into church culture. I want to invite you to meet somebody who can transform you from the inside out. That's where our, our identity really sits and starts and begins. And I hope, like, again, if, if you're in that space tonight where you're like, man, I think I resonate with that. 
I think I've known about God for a long time. I'm not sure I know him. Good, you're in the right place, all right? That's what we're diving into, studying about that, learning that. Keep coming back. Keep soaking it up, all right? That's where we're headed together. Um, two important things I want to get out to you before we get into the text. One is that we're talking about John the Baptist tonight and not John the Apostle. Those are two different people. And if you're not super familiar with the Bible, I just want to make sure that you understand that. John the Baptist came before Jesus. He was, so he was someone who was a prophet. And, um, and I'll get to that actually a little bit more in just a second. But John the Baptist's job, part of it was to prepare the way for Jesus. So that's one piece that you need to know, okay? And he's a weird dude. <laughs> he's, a, he's a weird dude. He had a reputation for being a weird dude. He was out in the wilderness. He wore like these, you know, wild animals as clothes. And uh, his, his message was different. But here's the thing. He starts to gain influence. He starts to gain popularity. He starts to have followers. That's something that you need to know for the text that we're in tonight because he starts to gain this following. That's first. Second of all, you need to know there were all these prophecies from the Old Testament, and these three words were important. Zechariah 9.9 talks about the Messiah coming, okay? All of the Jewish people knew this. Someday a Messiah would come. They were very familiar with this Messiah who would come. Zechariah 9.9 talks about the Messiah who would come, even talks about that he will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, that he will come on a donkey, And Jesus fulfilled that, like to the letter, amongst tons of other things that he fulfilled. But there are two other things that are prophesied in the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Deuteronomy 18, 15 uses different language. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. So in the minds of the Jewish people, there were three things that they were waiting for. They didn't know if they were going to be different, if they were all the same one, but it's like a new Elijah, the prophet, and the Messiah. Those are three prophecies the Jewish people were like, okay, we understand that these things are coming. So now that you're armed with that that information, let's jump to our text, okay? About John the Baptist. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, this is John the Baptist, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Okay, pause for just a moment. So in answer to the question, who are you? I am not is a weird answer. I am not blank. Somebody comes up to you and says, who are you? And you're like, I'm not Steve. That's a weird answer, okay? That's not what they asked, okay? But that's the answer that he gives them. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, Okay, what then? Are you Elijah? You hear what they're digging for? There are three things that they know they're looking for. Messiah, the new Elijah, and the prophet. Okay, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's a quote from Isaiah, by the way, a direct quote. As the prophet Isaiah said, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy 
to untie. This is John the Baptist's answer to them. Who are you? I mean, we're starting this I am series, you guys, of all these I am statements of Jesus. I just find it compelling before we even get to that, that when we look at John the Baptist, four times in, in, in the book of John, John the Baptist is like, I am not. His answer to who are you is I am not. That's where we start the I am series. I'm not. And John, you guys, was famous. Like, he was famous. He had influence. And yet still, with all the influence that he had, he's saying, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. That's the kind of stuff John the Baptist was talking about. Don't pay attention to me. Pay attention to him. He could very easily, in celebrity pastor mode, have, <laughs> have said, you guys, I'm very important. You know what Jesus would say about John the Baptist? I'll just give you a couple of them. Matthew eleven nine. 9, Jesus said that John the Baptist was more than a prophet. Jesus said in Matthew eleven eleven, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Did you know that Malachi 3, 1 is a prophecy about John the Baptist that John the Baptist fulfills, written 500 years before John the Baptist was around? So John the Baptist could have shown up and been like, behold, it is I, the messenger, the one who comes before the Messiah. It's like, I am the great introducer of Jesus. Like that, he had every right to bring that message to the table, and he doesn't. You know what he says? Mm, not me, him. If I'm drawing attention, it is not to me, it is to him. John the Baptist's message was not notice me, it was don't notice me. Look through me. Let me be a mirror that reflects something else. That's what I want. And he had every right to draw attention to himself. But in the presence of Christ, man, it's hard. It's hard to take that attention off of him and bring it on yourself. If there's one lesson John the Baptist teaches us tonight, it is this. It's a good thing for me to recognize I'm not the Messiah. I am not the center. I am not God. That's him over there. I'll point you that direction. I will use my influence to help you understand who God is. There's three refreshing things I want to hit tonight about John the Baptist. Three things that I, I absolutely adore. First of all, his unworthiness. Do you see it here in the end? There's one who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. There's something I love about John the Baptist in that his unworthiness isn't shame. This, he didn't, it's like he, he didn't come, he baptized Jesus. He didn't come and grovel at the feet of Jesus and just follow him around all the time and be like, I am not worthy to be near you and like just try to moan and make himself low. There was also a confidence about John the Baptist and who he was. Some of you have struggled with that. Your unworthiness has looked more like shame. That's not what it needs to look like. Hebrews 4.16 says that we're allowed to come before the throne of grace with confidence Y'all, if you're followers of Jesus in the room, you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we are sons and daughters of the King, forgiven and cleansed, white as snow. We have confidence, not arrogance. We do not have arrogance in front of the throne of grace, but we do have confidence as sons and daughters. I love that about John the Baptist. Second, I want you to notice his purpose, his reason for existing. Did you catch it in there? Make straight the paths, the way of the Lord. You know what that means? Sometimes, you guys, most of you know I got a lot of kids, okay? And I, I love being outdoors. I love hiking and stuff, so we'll go, we'll go hiking together. Um, 
all the time when you're on trails. Trails don't always get kept up well, and especially if you've got little kids that you're hiking with. It's like, even if, even if there is not a trip hazard, everything is a trip hazard when you're walking with children, okay? But part of your role as a parent as you're hiking is to make straight the path that lies in front of everybody else. You know what I mean? Like if there's a tree, somebody's going to get hurt by it. So you push that thing off the side and you see a big rock or you tell everybody there's a big rock, okay? So you don't end up with a medical emergency halfway through your hike. Part of your role is to make straight the path for who's coming behind you. And that's part of John's role that he recognizes. It's his job to clear obstacles from the path to help people find Jesus. So you guys, I have to ask the question. That begs me asking the question tonight. Is that your role? Do you see yourself as someone who clears obstacles out of other people's paths? Last two years, you guys, during COVID and election season, let me tell you one of the most disturbing and disgusting things for me as a Christian is watching how many friends of mine who call themselves followers of Jesus placing obstacles in people's paths constantly between them and Christ. Placing obstacles instead of removing obstacles. So caught up with the rules of this world, they've forgotten the way the kingdom world works. And I'm asking you tonight, are you the kind of person who can imitate John the Baptist to say it's my job to remove obstacles? One of the complaints that Jesus made about the Pharisees let me see if I can give you an actual, uh, yeah, Matthew 23, 4. Jesus is frustrated with the Pharisees and angry for, with them. Why? Because they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to help them, Jesus says. Are you the kind of person who's taking burdens off of people's shoulders? Are you the kind of person who's laying burdens on people's shoulders, making it harder for them to see Jesus for who he really is? Are you the kind of person who's putting obstacles in people's paths? It's hard for them to see Jesus for all the obstacles you've placed. Are you spending this lifetime removing obstacles for people? I love that lesson in John the Baptist's life. Last one. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one. I want you to notice his voice. He called himself a spokesperson. Verse 23 here, he says, I am the voice crying in the wilderness. Do you believe that about you, that you are a spokesperson for God, that you are someone who prepares the way? You're someone going out in advance. You're someone whose voice speaks the words that would bring other people to God. You're like, I don't speak that well. Guess what, you guys? You don't have to. The Holy Spirit's the one who does that kind of work but is your mouth open enough to speak the words of God that are coming out of you the way that John's? He's just a voice preparing the way, a voice crying in the wilderness, it says. How are you using your voice? You guys, John had influence. He was the leader of a movement. And I don't know if you've noticed this. I'm quite certain that you have. Within Christianity or outside of it, it doesn't really matter. The more a person has influence, the more that it just seems that that influence is pointed back at themselves. How do you build the brand? How do you build the brand? You guys, I promise, I promise, if there's a person that did not have a brand, it was John the Baptist, who's walking around wearing camel's hair and eating locusts, okay? Didn't care what you thought of him, didn't need the brand, wanted to point himself to Christ. That's the way that he would use his voice as a spokesperson. As a matter of fact, I think some of the most powerful words that John the Baptist ever spoke were these. He must become greater and greater, and I must become 
less and less. If we all just sat and stared at that verse for 30 minutes, it would probably be a better sermon than I'm preaching right now. (laughs) He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Man, that's a memory verse for this week. I ache for these kinds of people to be around and influenced by these kinds of people, to lead these kinds of people, to send these kinds of people. These are the kinds of people that I want that are not about, hey, notice me. Do you see what I did today? Do you see how hard it was? Do you see how good it was? Do you see how pretty I am? Do you see how tough I am? Do you see all the stuff that I'm doing? I long for the kind of people around me that push me to be more like this. That's like, you know what? More credit to God, less credit to me. More humble of a voice, less of you focusing on me, more of you focusing on him. Less of a window frame, more of a mirror. God, I want to push this to you. Our words carry power, my friends. Maybe that's why Paul said to us, let no foul or polluting language or evil word or unwholesome or worthless talk ever come out of your mouth, but only such speech is as good and beneficial to the spiritual progress of others as is fitting to the need and the occasion that it may be a blessing and give grace to those who hear it. Is that your voice? Here's the other cool thing. Our testimony doesn't just come from our voice. You see this in John's life too. This comes out of Colossians from Paul. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You notice here it's not just about your word. It's also about your deeds, which is your behavior. You know, your words and your deeds. Your words is your voice, but your deeds are your life. So there's this idea that I am congruent between the words that you hear me preaching tonight and the way that I'm living my life Tuesday morning? Is there a congruence between the way that you're living your life and the words that flow out of your mouth? That whatever we're doing, both in word and in deed, points back to the Heavenly Father. That's part of who we are. You guys, John the Baptist lived in a way, this is kind of weird for me to say, because the way that he lived was so weird, okay? But John the Baptist lived and preached in a way that people walked miles In this one, it's just two miles, but there are further. People walked miles to try to figure out what in the world he was about. So again, begs the question, are you living your life in a way where people would walk miles to be like, who are they? You say, how do I do that? Man, if on a college campus, I'm going to give you some examples I wrote out. If on a college campus, you live a Jesus life, You have a different view of sex. You think it's great, but it's not meant to be shared with everyone, so you're waiting for marriage. That's different on a college campus, you guys. Giving up your spring break to serve other places and actually paying money to do it, that's weird. It's different. On a Monday night, you're going back to a classroom to listen to a sermon on a Monday. That's weird. That's different. Your social media is not just a giant altar that you've built to yourself. That's different. You apologize when you're wrong. You guys, that's different. That's living a different kind of life. You seem to have a hope and a peace about you. You don't get hammered on the weekends. You're careful about your speech. Gossip doesn't come out of your mouth. You build other people up with your words. You guys, you live a life like that. People are going to walk miles to be like, what's going on with you? I do not understand this life that you're living. You can't live a life like that. You start giving your money and your time away, and you're going to have friends who walk up, and they're like, we're concerned about you. What's going on with you, man? Sermons on Monday? Come on. 
You live a life like that where your speech is different and your behavior is different and evangelism comes to you, you guys. People walk miles to say, what is this priority in your life? I don't understand. I don't understand who you are. One of the best ways for others to see Jesus is for you to live truly like he is a king. So as I wrap up in this tonight, here's what I want you to hear. You guys, kingship, this idea that my life is submitted to God, that it's handed over to him, it's not a shared thing. Thrones don't have two seats usually. I don't know if you've noticed this. They're not, they're not a tandem affair, okay? You don't share them. That authority belongs to one person. And as followers of Jesus, Jesus is the one on that throne. I am not. John knew that well. When given the opportunity to talk about himself, he deferred. I am not the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. That's the Messiah. He pointed to the throne. He didn't take it for himself. Didn't want to draw that attention. That's a good lesson. Paul had some good words. I mean, he had a lot of good words. This is just one of them, okay? Romans 12.1. So, dear brothers and sisters... I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he'll find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. You understand that Paul's talking about a death here. Princess Bride fans, anyone? Okay, so you especially understand when, like, that is the only context where partially dead and mostly dead makes any sense at all, okay? That's the only one. So if something happens to someone in my family and you're like, they're, are they okay? Did everything go okay? And I'm like, well, they're a little bit dead. But you, like, that doesn't compute. That doesn't make sense in language. You're like, no, 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 no. De death is, is final. God is saying here, I want you to offer your bodies as a sacrifice that stays alive. God sits on his throne you are the ongoing sacrifice. Your life laid on the altar. That's the way it is. You guys, part of the reason that we rob ourselves of the joy in Christianity is that we, we give ourselves partial throneship, partial crown, partial throne, partial obedience. So I want to introduce you to this phrase this week that a friend of mine gave me years and years ago. He's a preaching friend of mine. He preached on this for a while. It's nomopo, Okay. Write this on your hand, write it somewhere in your notes, write it somewhere because I want you to remember this this week. It just stands for no more partial obedience. No more partial obedience. No more grabbing the throne back. No more grabbing the crown back. No more grabbing the glory back. No more taking it from me. Learning a lesson from John the Baptist and saying this belongs to the king of the universe and he can be God and I can recognize that I am not. And you guys, in a culture full of self-worship, in a culture full of notice me, I promise that stands out like crazy. No more Pope. No more partial obedience, you guys. No more shared king kingship. We give the glory to God and we leave it to him. Before we try to figure out we, who we are, we need to know who we aren't. I am not God. I am not the center of the universe. I am not the Messiah. I am not the one who can provide hope or peace or purpose, but I want to use my life and my voice in a way that reveals the one who can bring that. And I promise you guys, when we give God all, people will walk miles 
to ask who we are.